Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining our webinar today. My name is Peter Lee, and I am a research fellow here at the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the US Studies Center. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present, and future. It's my great pleasure to moderate today's session to discuss the launch of a new US Studies Center report by my colleague, Susanna Padden, which is titled, A Seat at the Table, the Role of Regional Multilateral Institutions in US Indo-Pacific Strategy. Susanna's report is the latest installment of the Foreign Policy and Defense Program's ongoing work on how the US, Australia, and other like-minded partners can promote a stable Indo-Pacific order and favorable balance of power. It complements our August report titled Correcting the Course, How the Biden Administration Should Compete for Influence in the Indo-Pacific, which is available online at the US Study Center's website. Our work is generously supported by the Australian government uh, through a grant from the Department of Defense and is also made possible thanks to the ongoing support we receive from our corporate sponsors, Northrop Grumman and TELUS, for which we are very grateful. As always, the views expressed in this webinar are those of the speakers alone. We are also joined today uh, by two distinguished scholars of US-Asia affairs to share their thoughts on the report's key findings and recommendations. Joining us from the United States is Dr. Prashant uh, Paramiswaran, who is a fellow with the Wilson Center's Asia program, director of, at the consultancy group, Dow Group Asia, and a senior columnist at The Diplomat. Um, and joining us from Hanoi is Ms. Uh, Huang Tia, co-coordinator of the Regional Strategic and Political Studies Program at ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore. I wanna thank Prashant and Ha for joining us. I'm acknowledging that it's way outside office hours for both of you um, where you're joining us from. To briefly sort of canvas this report, I think for those of us in the region, um, participation in the overlapping and interlocking set of forums, working groups, agreements, and institutions that really constitute the Asian institutional architecture uh, is often taken for granted. Um, but Suzanne's report uh, is an excellent reminder that for a global power such as the United States, consistent and effective engagement in the region's institutional architecture has not been as straightforward. And her report looks at key groupings and forums such as the EAS, APEC, the ADMM Plus, and highlights the enduring benefits of US engagement in regional multilateralism. As her report's wonderful title highlights, um, having a seat at the table is so crucial. So with that, um, I'd like to invite Susanna to offer some brief comments on her report. Susanna? Thank you very much, Peter, and thanks so much to Prashant and Ha for joining our discussion as well today. Um, so I'll briefly go over the, the report um, and I'll start with just explaining a little bit about why I wrote this paper, because it might not be obvious why an Australian think tank that's focused on the United States would take this approach. Um, and the context for it really is that embedding the role of the US in Asia has been one of Australia's 
highest foreign policy priorities for many years. And over the past 10 years, that's had a focus in terms of um, the military strategic cooperation between Australia and the US and forced posture initiatives that have embedded the US role in Asia through its presence, um, rotational presence in Northern Australia. But the much longer story over the past 30 years has been that Australia has sought to embed the role of the US in Asia through diplomatic means, um, through forums like APEC, the ASEAN Regional Forum and the East Asia Summit. Um, and in doing so, Australia has always um, had a pretty strong view that inclusive regional forums rather than exclusive East Asian regionalism was the way to safeguard Australia's interests. Um, so it's often said that other young countries want the US to engage constructively um, with it and in the groups that it leads, but there's also a broader range of countries that have an interest too. Um, and more recently, I've become concerned by what Ha and others have written about as the sort of the erosion of the EAS and of Asia's inclusive forums. Um, and part of that, I think, story is about the United States. Um, so a brief sort of snapshot of um, the key points from the report and the recommendations. Um, and of course, you can read it, it's available online, so I won't go into too much detail. And I think the discussion will be the, the more interesting part. But um, basically, the report has the starting point that as China-US rivalry has intensified in Asia, the prospect of genuine political security dialogue in forums like the EAS has diminished. Um, 10 years ago, it was pretty common to hear the view that forums like the EAS could help enmesh the region's great powers, lower the risk of conflict, and that's a view that you'll rarely hear these days. Um, in parallel with that, there's been a development in, in US policy, which has really been the retrenchment of the US from um, regional economic arrangements going back to around um, 2017. And that has really, I think, um, taken some of the wind out of the original US goals for institutions like APEC, which was about um, uh, deeper economic integration um, between um, the US and countries in Asia and also within Asia as well. Um, so that has also affected um, sort of the US interest in these groups. Um, but these forums are still very important. And I think the best way of thinking about them and what I try to set out in the report is that they can play an important role in building US regional influence. Um, first of all, they're an efficient way of doing diplomacy. They bring together um, many key countries from the region in one place at one time. Um, the US president and cabinet officials will never have enough time in the day to go everywhere that they need to be. So um, the way that these forums convene key countries and offer opportunities for sideline discussions is really crucial. I think they also have an important focusing effect because they mean that, you know, at least twice a year, if not more often, um, the administration will um, automatically have to focus on the Indo-Pacific. Um, they help present the US as a constructive regional player and also help shape the regional narrative in a way that can be very favourable to the US because it shows that the US is engaging with all countries, not just those that align with it strategically, which I think is the kind of the risk that the Biden approach to the region presents and we can talk more about that in the discussion. 
And finally, um, the US presence in these forums avoids vacating the field to China and to forums in which China has greater influence, like the ASEAN plus three and other um, less inclusive groups. So the main recommendations for the report are um, number one, use the upcoming calendar of regional meetings um, to focus US attention on the Indo-Pacific. Um, uh, you know, next year, for example, Indonesia will host the G20, then it will host ASEAN the year after. Um, next year, Thailand will host APEC. So those kind of opportunities offer the US the chance to really partner with important countries in Asia. Um, second recommendation is something that, according to reports, may already be underway anyway, which is that the US should invite ASEAN leaders for a special summit, um, and it should also elevate its partnership with ASEAN to a comprehensive strategic partnership to keep it on an equal footing with um, what China and Australia have done. Um, a final recommendation is that um, is that the United States should really make its work with Indonesia a key part and a key sort of um, integrated aspect of the way that it works with regional forums. Indonesia is the linchpin of ASEAN and it's hard to see the Biden administration getting ASEAN right without getting Indonesia right. Um, so just to conclude briefly, I think, you know, exclusive minilateral groupings like the Quad are very useful for US strategy if the goal is about aligning with key allies and partners who share the US approach to China. But if the goal is about building influence with the broadest possible group of countries, then groupings like the Quad are less useful and um, the inclusive forums like ASEAN um, and APEC um, are really much more important. So I'll, I'll leave it there to save plenty of time to, to discussion and, and hand it back to you, Peter. Thank you, Susanna. Um, there's a lot to unpack in that, and hopefully in the next sort of 50 minutes, we'll get into some of those key recommendations. Um, I'd now like to hand over to Prashant to offer some comments on the report, and also how you think um, the Biden administration's multilateral priorities um, are shaping up as we head into the second year of his term. Prashant? Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, and thank you to um, USSC um, for, for the invitation and looking forward to the discussion. It's nice to see um, a, a big turnout uh, virtually uh, for this discussion. Um, and I also wanted to congratulate um, Susanna for, for the report. Um, I think, you know, I'll just say a few words um, about some of the recommendations and what she said already. I, I think not only is it well-timed, uh, given the fact that um, the, I think we're headed for a very exciting uh, potentially year for US-ASEAN relations for the Biden administration's perspective, if things stay on track and obviously with the pandemic and a number of, of domestic and regional variables, it kind of remains to be seen. But from what we're hearing and what the administration's thinking is, it definitely seems like we're lined up for um, a, a pretty ambitious year for US ASEAN and US Southeast Asia relations. I, I would also say, um, you know, some of the recommendations that are offered are, are forward looking and not just looking at some of the immediate things. Um, you know, Susanna goes into the regional dynamics and, and the calendar really geopolitically um, in terms of some of the sectors and some of the countries that are going to be uh, taking some of these regional forums, uh, Indonesia and the G20, but also the, the Cambodia ASEAN chairmanship, uh, which is definitely, there seem to be a lot of um, sort of priorities and ambitions that the Cambodian government is laying out for the South China Sea, integrating Timor into ASEAN. It's very ambitious, but I think given where we, we were in 2012 with Cambodia's last chairmanship, 
as well as the really vexing series of challenges that ASEAN is dealing with as an institution. I think there's a lot of anxieties, um, not just here in Washington, but in the region as well on, on that front. And I think as well, the, the recommendations are, are, are quite comprehensive. So the, we're talking here mostly about regional institutions, but Susanna does go into some of the institutions like the G20 that are more global in reach. And I definitely think that reflects some of the early thinking of the Biden administration in terms of a multi-layered approach to engagement. So whether they're talking about supply chains, uh, democracy, human rights, there definitely are thinking about not just engaging um, ASEAN, the ADMM, but also the G20 new institutions like the Democracy Summit, which um, virtually is coming up, but you know, hopefully is gonna be in person next year. Um, it's not only the summit, but also engaging civil society actors, um, academics, think tankers, in terms of the agenda out to the year more broadly, and really going beyond this notion of democracy as an aggregate notion, but also looking at specific things like uh, anti-corruption, uh, transparency, environmental defenders, things that are very relevant uh, for Southeast Asia uh, in particular. So beyond the whole sort of who's being invited and who's not invited, I, I do think it is an interesting point for conversation uh, that's mutually respectable because the United States also has its own challenges on diversity, inclusion, democracy, and human rights, as, as we're all well aware. Um, I would also say just uh, by way of uh, just the general approach and where the Biden administration is headed, Peter, that you asked about, uh, I would say that the sort of U.S. approach to multilateral institutions, as Susanna laid out, it, it's fairly recent and, and it's quite uh, contested. Um, and I think everyone in the region is, is well aware whether we talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which um, folks in Washington were uh, before uh, things went off the rails in the Trump administration were saying, you know, this is going to get done. Um, the fact that the United States eventually pulled out, um, even though TPP is not really a, a sort of multilateral institution, um, nonetheless, it does, doesn't send a, a very encouraging message on U.S. engagement in, in institutions and new institutions. And similarly with the East Asia Summit, when the United States joined uh, this, I remember the, the debate and conversation very well in Southeast Asian circles about the question, which was, you know, would the U.S. president be able to attend the East Asia Summit uh, every single year? And uh, U.S. policymakers saying, no, we're, we're committed to this. And subsequently, even though we saw a very good record uh, under the Obama administration, under the Trump administration, that did take uh, a little bit of a hit. And we're seeing a little bit of a recovery in the Biden administration. So I think we do need to acknowledge that upfront. I think we also do need to acknowledge that U.S. Uh, sort of engagement in the region multilaterally has always taken place in a contested sort of landscape, right? So whether we look at um, the Cold War engagement when the U.S. engaged with ASEAN, it was engaging with ASEAN as a mechanism of non-communist countries in a battle against communism in the midst of the Cold War. And even after the Cold War, the United States was engaging with its partners and allies like Australia, with institutions like APEC, but there were discussions within Southeast Asia to keep the United States out. Um, and conversations within the United States about how the United States would engage relative to, say, Japan in terms of the lens of economic competition. So those dynamics are, are still very much at play uh, till today, and I don't think we should dismiss that. But I think the Biden administration is off to a good start, uh, given, given that challenging landscape. I think they're saying all the right things in terms of uh, multilateral engagement. They're doing the things that are, relatively speaking, the easier things to do. Um, engaging with the region, uh, President Biden directly meeting with leaders, albeit virtually, and saying, we're engaged, I'm going to be there personally. 
I think 2022 is going to be the, the year of delivery uh, for U.S.-ASEAN relations. And so that's going to be a challenge for the administration because it's domestically here, it's, it's a year of midterms. Um, but also, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we're also in a, in a period where um, if you look at the democracy summit, for example, you'll see that not a single country from uh, mainland Southeast Asia has been invited. And a lot of the challenges that ASEAN is facing next year is, is going to be from mainland Southeast Asia. So whether it's Cambodia with the ASEAN chairmanship, Myanmar, Thailand is hosting APEC, but it's also uh, a challenge for the United States to engage because of the democracy and, and human rights questions that kind of remain uh, unresolved. So I think that's one aspect. I think it's also important to acknowledge that multilateralism is only one aspect of the challenge for U.S. Asia policy and U.S. Southeast Asia policy. I do think there are questions around uh, China and the notion of U.S.-China competition and what that means for Southeast Asian states. The Biden administration has done a good job in terms of framing this as being, we're not, we're actually trying to expand your choices. We're not trying to restrict your choices. But I think there's always going to be a certain amount of caution in Southeast Asian capitals about whether there's going to be follow through. And I think part of that also is determined by, by what China does, not just what the United States does. So that remains to be seen. I think on democracy and human rights, there's serious questions in Southeast Asia about um, every time a US administration comes forward and says, we have a strong democracy agenda. What does that mean? Who does that include? Who does that exclude? And how does that affect other aspects like economic engagement and diplomatic engagement? And I think third and, and, and finally, um, there is still this notion about um, economic engagement uh, by the United States. And I think even though the Biden administration to its credit is doing all that it can in a challenging environment, uh, you know, sort of setting out an Indo-Pacific economic framework talking about uh, things like digital, uh, climate, uh, and so on in the sectoral terms, I think there's still going to be a demand for the United States to join actual agreements, and that's not really going to go away. And so I, I think that's where the rubber hits the road on, on the uh, economic agenda. But I would just, just conclude by saying you know, one final thing. We are sort of talking about the United States here. Um, ultimately, a lot of the challenges in terms of multilateralism in Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific a lot of them are internal to Southeast Asian countries and ASEAN as a whole. So, you know, the fact that we we have seen um, some inward looking tendencies among key uh, Southeast Asian countries, including leaders like Indonesia, albeit for different reasons, we can debate what those reasons are, but we've seen that trend. Um, ASEAN has talked about institutional and structural reforms. Everyone knows what those reforms are. Um, but they haven't been promulgated for reasons that everybody knows uh, why, why they're not being promulgated. The same reasons why ASEAN was set up the way it was set up. It's very difficult for some of these countries to give up sovereignty to achieve those ends. And as long as those foundational, regional, and domestic realities remain, the United States will have to engage in that context by which that sustainability question that I talked about up front will always remain. So irrespective of what the Biden administration does in 2022, there's going to be the usual questions about what happens in 2024, what happens in 2028, and so on and so forth. And I think until we arrive at a point where multiple administrations are showing sustained commitment, um, that question of sustainability and staying power will remain irrespective of what the United States does. But I would say it's an encouraging start from the Biden administration, but but to be seen in terms of 2022 and what the domestic and regional variables are. So I'll conclude with that and thanks, looking forward to the discussion.
Thanks so much, Prashant. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can have a bit more of a discussion um, together in terms of these two other big agendas, I guess, the democracy agenda and sort of the trade agenda alongside sort of that traditional security cooperation. Uh, I'd now like to invite Ha to share uh, your thoughts um, on how particularly our colleagues in Southeast Asia are assessing the Biden administration's multilateral approach um, and institutional engagement. So over to you, Ha. Thanks, Peter. Uh, I would like to extend my congratulations to Susanna for her excellent report. And uh, I'm very happy to be part of the panel today to discuss um, her very well-rounded and well-balanced uh, recommendations and analysis. Uh, we all know that it is very uh, commonplace and even fashionable uh, to dismiss ASEAN as inherently infectual or increasingly irrelevant, uh, which is not entirely untrue. But uh, criticizing ASEAN uh, for what it is not meant to do or what it fails or refuses to become is actually much easier than leveraging ASEAN for what it is and um, what it can realistically offer uh, for your own national interests. I think it takes both pragmatism and a sense of optimism uh, to do so. And I think Susanna's report is really imbued uh, with both. Um, I am very impressed by Susanna's realistic and honest assessment of the inherent constraints of multilateral institutions and um, their complementary, not fundamental value to the US foreign policy as a great power. Um, this is a reality that US strategists must confront in their approach to ASEAN institutions. So uh, as Susanna said, um, the challenge for Washington is to articulate a strategy which uh, simultaneously accepts ASEAN institutions limitations and embraces the opportunity they uh, present uh, to strengthen US influence uh, in Asia. Um, and uh, that's why I am I, I really like Sudana's um, paradigm shift, I think, uh, by looking at ASEAN not from the results-oriented frame, but from the access and influence frame. And uh, investing in ASEAN is not mainly and essentially about achieving concrete outcomes or effective solutions to regional problems, but it is more about maintaining US access to and influence over uh, regional institutions, diplomacy, uh, and narrative. Uh, and given the strategic and influence importance of Southeast Asia in the Indo-Pacific, I think it's hard to see Washington win over this region or even maintain its uh, influence if it lets go of ASEAN. Uh, we all know that uh, China has the US in mind as uh, Beijing steps up its uh, relations and investment uh, in ASEAN uh, in the recent years. And I think the same should apply to the US. Um, therefore, I am quite uh, impressed uh, by the third and fourth parts of Susanna's report, uh, namely shaping Washington's uh, regional narrative and preventing China from dominating regional agree, uh, arrangements. Uh, I think Susanna's arguments draw home the growing importance of discourse power as an arena of Sino-US competition in Southeast Asia. Um, I remember in the early days of uh, the ASEAN-China relations in the early 1990s and even in the, uh, in, the, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, 
the general expectation was for ASEAN to socialize China into uh, the regional norms and frameworks. But nowadays, uh, China is actively reversing the equation by seeking to socialize ASEAN and by extension ASEAN member states uh, into China's uh, normative uh, preferences and also the Chinese vision of uh, a more exclusionary uh, regional order. Uh, we can see that uh, very clearly through the ongoing negotiations on the code of conduct uh, in the South China Sea, uh, as well as many Chinese initiatives towards ASEAN, uh, including the recent establishment of the ASEAN-China Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. And uh, China increasingly frames itself together with ASEAN and its members as we, not regional countries in a community of a common destiny versus they external powers who just want to justify their presence by stirring up problems, uh, be it in the South China Sea or the Mekong River. And uh, robust relations with ASEAN also have China promote a positive narrative uh, about its uh, leadership credentials among developing countries and its good uh, international citizenship and uh, thereby uh, it tries to gloss over other problematic aspects of its behavior, uh, including in the South China Sea. So uh, to put up an effective challenge uh, to China's narrative and promote the US vision of the regional rules-based order, Washington must have a seat at the table and up its game in ASEAN. As Prashan uh, said, it doesn't, I also share the view that it doesn't really take billions of dollars to do so, but it takes sustained uh, strategic focus, uh, political commitment and innovative policy initiatives. So um, uh, with that, uh, I would like to end my short remark here. And once again, congratulate Susanna for the very good report and very practical recommendations. And I'm sure a few of them uh, would be taken uh, by uh, Washington uh, next year for the delivery of 2022. Thank you so much, Ha. Um, I guess before we open up to a more wide-ranging discussion amongst the panelists, um, I will also encourage our audience um, to post any questions in the Q&A function, uh, and we'll endeavor to answer them either live or type the answers out as well. Um, but before we head on, um, Susanna, any thoughts on Prashant and Ha's excellent sort of comments and feedback? Oh, thank you so much to, to both of you. I, I'm disappointed that there's not more um, like robust disagreement on, on any of the, um, the, the key recommendations or points, um, but I, I really appreciate um, your comments. And I just wanted to pick up on, on what Ha mentioned about the, um, you know, this regional narrative about the US being an outside power, because I think that's really at the heart of this. And it's something which when President Obama first attended the EAS in 2011, um, and I, I go into this in the report, he, he helped dispel the idea that China was putting forward at the time that outside countries should not have a role on the South China Sea, because he encouraged um, various countries to, to, you know, to raise um, in their remarks the, the discussion of maritime security. And I think at the moment, you know, the, the challenge that the US faces is that groupings like the Quad and to a lesser extent AUKUS, you know, they convey the idea that, that, that outside powers who are working um, sort of from the periphery of the region rather than from the core in Southeast Asia um, 
you know, are going to be playing a determinative role in the region's future. And I think that's that's something that that's very dangerous. And so I think that's where, you know, ASEAN is such an opportunity to, you know, really demonstrate that you're working um, with the region as part of, as a sort of a central indispensable part of those of those groups. Thanks so much, Susanna. Um, I had a sort of a question for all three of our speakers today, um, and it goes back to something that Susanna mentioned um, in the report and in your opening remarks today as well. And I guess it builds on what Prashant was mentioning about this multi-layered approach. So, I mean, Vice President Kamala Harris has spoken about a US focus on what she calls results-oriented groups, uh, right, to get things done. Um, but, you know, for anyone who's looked at ASEAN, you know, we often see it as a consensus-driven body rather than a results-oriented um, objective. So I guess, you know, how do you think Southeast Asia is going to respond to this? You know, is this really complementary or this multi-layered view that Prashant was talking about? Um, any, of, any thoughts? Huh? Okay. Okay. Um... I think by now, after almost one year of the Biden administrations, uh, uh, I think uh, we are already uh, quite uh, clear about the fact that uh, the Biden administration's approach to ASEAN multilateralism is guided more by pragmatism than by idealism. Uh, uh, and unlike uh, from the Obama time, that means that um, uh, America will do the needful to participate in ASEAN institutions and um, give performative support for ASEAN centrality for all the good reasons uh, that Susanna had mentioned in her report. Uh, at the same time, I think we will continue to see American substantive investment um, in minilateral groupings um, for results-oriented uh, outcomes uh, in terms of coordinating policy or, and response on many issues uh, among uh, its like-minded partners uh, and capable partners as well. So uh, we all know that ASEAN, uh, many in ASEAN are concerned that the Biden administration is putting emphasis on these minilaterals. And uh, this is the question that kept you know, popping up uh, whenever uh, like high level US officials turn up at ASEAN um, in an, an ASEAN forum. And they are afraid that such uh, emphasis uh, wouldn't be at the expense of ASEAN's more broad based and of course, uh, more slow moving institutions. Uh, but um, just whining and crying with a victim mentality can only go that far, I think. Um, why ASEAN member states must uh, continue to impress upon Washington uh, the importance to engage with ASEAN institutions. Uh, as Prashan mentioned earlier, this is an internal uh, problem of ASEAN as well. So ASEAN must really take a long, hard look on how it should be reformed to be more responsive and relevant to challenges um, facing itself and the region. Um, at times, I think it is almost a mission impossible for ASEAN because of the embedded safeguards uh, such as consensus and non-interference. But I, for all of its limitations, I think ASEAN can surprise us from time to time. Uh, one good example is ASEAN's tough decision to exclude the Myanmar junta leader from the October ASEAN summit meetings as well as the recent ASEAN-China commemorative summit, despite China's heavy lobbying for his seat at the table. So um, I think it is important to keep engaged with ASEAN 
and try to uh, you know give ASEAN the the options and the choices that it needs as well instead of just just expressing frustrations and moving on to other uh, institutions. Thanks. Susanna or Prashant. I was just going to add to what uh, Ha said and say, you know, I, I'd agree with particularly the aspect of um, the fact that this is both an internal question for ASEAN as, as well as an external one for, for actors like the United States. I think from, from a U.S. policy perspective for the Biden administration, I think the big, the big question really is to what extent are the approaches to minilateral, multilateral, and bilateral mechanisms competitive or are they sort of collaborative and mutually reinforcing? And uh, the administration has made clear that there are ongoing efforts to try to align these various mechanisms. So, for example, regionalizing individual bilateral relationships that are significant. So the U.S.-Singapore relationship, you're seeing that increasingly become a sort of regional platform for things like cyber and also supply chains economically. Um, there's a similar ongoing effort with Vietnam, for example, uh, by the United States. And, you know, that is a little bit more slower moving because of, you know, mechanisms on, on both sides and domestic issues. But I do think you're going to see more of that. I think on the quad, I, I really think, you know, my own view is that we have passed this question about whether the quad is about China or about everything else other than China. I think the administration has made clear that quad 2.0 is, is sort of more about delivering for tangible things that the region needs, whether it's on climate, emerging and critical technologies, or vaccines and health. And I think if you separate out that question and ask, you know, what, what is ASEAN working on? ASEAN is working on all of those things, right? Those are things that everybody should care about. And if the Quad actually delivers on those things, it becomes a mechanism more about responding to regional needs rather than you know, sort of picking a fight with China or, or trying to leave a country out. I think on AUKUS, that's a little bit more of a mixed story, frankly. Um, I thought personally that, you know, AUKUS, it makes sense from a hard power security perspective, and I can understand the, the mechanism from an alliance perspective, but I also do think it foreshadowed, it's not, sorry, not foreshadowed, I meant overshadowed a lot of ongoing work by these three countries to actually do a lot of great work in the region that is non-security focused. Uh, so including the, the sort of work by the United States and Australia on, on things like the Mekong, on climate, on digital issues, sustainability, resilience, democracy, human rights. So I think calibrating that, and even if the United States is doing something that's security specific or security centric or something that's human rights democracy focused, uh, I think speaking more about the comprehensive nature of all of these relationships will kind of help make sure that these are mutually reinforcing rather than competitive. Because sometimes it's more about what you say rather than what you do. And, and the narrative and the messaging matters as much. If I can just jump in very briefly, sort of on this question about sort of results oriented and to what extent should the US be kind of pushing for things from ASEAN. Um, I just wanted to highlight that, you know, one of the areas of disagreement that I encountered when I was doing some consultations on this report was the idea about, you know, to what extent can the US use this moment to put pressure on ASEAN in a way that would encourage reform? Um, because if you look to the history, um, you know, the expansion of the EAS came after Australia made the proposal for the Asia-Pacific community. The RCEP negotiations took off um, after 
CPT, a TP, what was then called TPP, was uh, was being negotiated. So there is a history of ASEAN sort of responding to that competitive pressure. But in the end, I didn't include that as something that I really recommend that the US do at this point in time, because I think its relationship with ASEAN is really not on firm enough ground at this point. But, you know, perhaps, you know, towards the end of this administration, or if there was a second Biden term, then the US, you know, might have established sort of the kind of relationship where it can, um, you know, gently and constructively push for ASEAN to, um, you know, to, to reform and to make some groupings like the EAS more effective. But I acknowledge that is a sort of somewhat controversial suggestion um, in some quarters. Thanks, Susanna. Um, I just have a quick question for Ha, actually. Um, and I do encourage our audience, we have over 70 people um, in this webinar right now to you know, post your questions and we'll get to them in the last sort of 15, 20 minutes. Um, but for Ha, um, going back to sort of your point about what ASEAN wants, um, one of the themes that emerges um, in Susanna's report, um, at least in my reading, was this competitive instinct for the US uh, to engage in these institutions really as a means to balance Chinese influence, right, this competition. But I think also that, you know, Southeast Asian states themselves, um, they seek to get US participation as a counterbalance to China. Um, and they're really sort of leading that discussion. So where do you think, you know, this idea of elevating China to a CSP by ASEAN, you know, is that about signaling to the US? Is there any sort of interplay between those two different relationships and sort of where ASEAN is trying to get to this? Huh? We all know that uh, as China is very innovative and proactive in terms of coming up with all sorts of uh, propositions, initiatives to keep, you know, showing that ASEAN-China relations is one of the best, if not the best, uh, among all ASEAN dialogue partnership uh, relations. So um, I'm not surprised. Uh, the CSP was originally China's uh, proposal and it took ASEAN almost one year uh, to come to uh, the agreement to establish the CSP. And as you mentioned, Peter, um, I completely agree that ASEAN member states uh, are actively uh, seeking the engagement of not only China, but all other major and middle powers. Uh, there is a very good uh, phrase for this, uh, you know, is omni enmeshment strategy. I think, um, the, the, it is notable that uh, China continue, ASEAN continues to double down on this omni enmeshment um, strategy, uh, despite or exactly because of China's growing influence in the region. Uh, so ASEAN was very well uh, conscious of the need to maintain this uh, state of equilibrium in its relations with all other dialogue partners when it reached uh, the decision to establish the comprehensive strategic partnership with uh, China. And I wish to highlight two things, Peter. Uh, first, ASEAN intentionally did not use the words elevate or upgrade so as to avoid giving the impression that is uh, CSP with China now stands uh, above all of those other uh, dialogue partners. And second, um, ASEAN also established a CSP with Australia at the same time. And to me, this is an act of embracing and also defying the gravity of Chinese influence at the same time. Uh, and uh, Susanna put it in her report uh, very um, timely uh, about, you know, the US should also be in the game 
uh, with uh, a request for the establishment of CSP with ASEAN also. Uh, we talked about it in the beginning of our conversation that you know this is a low-hanging fruit. Um, we don't really have to think too much about what it means. Uh, you know, uh, the, the comprehensive strategic partnership is, uh, is, is very much uh, very vague and very um, subjective as well. Uh, so this is something that uh, you, the US uh, can do. And I'm sure that ASEAN is also very much open uh, to this. Thanks so much. And that's very useful. I didn't know that they didn't use elevation or upgrades. That's something I learned from today's webinar. Um, Prashant, I'll ask you a question. Um, and it feeds on one of our audience questions as well. I mean, Susanna's report is titled, you know, a seat at the table. Um, and when we think about that, we think, well, what's for dinner? Um, and then, you know, a lot of East Asia, it's, you know, trade, trade, prosperity, right? Um, and so, you know, you're in DC. And I think, you know, where do you see this it seems like an almost bipartisan opposition to things like CPTPP, a lot of these trade agreements, you know, domestically, at least in the US political system. And yet, you know, we've seen some polls that show that, you know, Americans are actually very supportive of free trade, you know, closer cooperation with Asia. Um, so, you know, where do you see those two different strands of thinking in the US? And I guess this leads to our first audience question, which is from uh, Heath McMichael, which says, the US is slated to chair APEC in 2023. Um, what does this mean for US leadership in regional economic architecture? Will valuable trade facilitation reform efforts be hostage to strategic competition in this context? So any thoughts on that from the DC perspective, Prashant? Yeah, I think two, two very tough questions. I, I would say that on, on APEC, um, you know, I, I think the Biden administration very deliberately uh, made the announcement uh, very early on because I think they were aware uh, of the fact that it was going to be very difficult to fashion an economic agenda under the domestic uh, sort of context in the United States. And it's it's kind of important to say that, you know, this was not something that was just a Trump administration issue. Um, I think the issue of, of trade uh, economically in the United States um, it is something where I think we're dealing with a little bit across the world as well, which is the calibration between foreign policy and domestic uh, policy and not taking for granted that issues like globalization enjoy the kind of domestic consensus there are, right? So just because the aggregate benefits are something that all of us can enjoy as strategic elites doesn't mean that outside of Washington, in other parts of, of the heartland, for example, here in the United States, there is that same recognition across groups. And you can sort of say that uh, as an economist, but when you talk to the individual groups that are not benefiting from, from trade, um, it's a much more difficult conversation to have. And it, this actually gets to what I think the Biden administration will need to do a lot more of, which is actually selling Asia, Southeast Asia and ASEAN more domestically, uh, rather than just in the region in terms of US policy. And that's something which, uh, you know, Kurt Campbell and others within the administration have talked about extensively and written about extensively. And I suspect we will see a little bit more of that um, as the administration progresses. I think on, on, on APEC though, the, the main mechanisms there is whether we're gonna see actual inroads on sectoral areas. So if you look at some of the outcomes that came out of, of this APEC meeting, um, there was a lot of progress on not only things that were discussed before, but also things like digital uh, climate, uh, for example. And you saw Gina Raimundo's uh, recent trip which included uh, Southeast Asian uh, countries as well as the core and Catherine Tai as well paid her visit to the region. Um, a lot of the discussions were around things like cross-border uh, data rules, 
privacy, for example, and digital is a big priority uh, for ASEAN. So I suspect those areas are going to be where we're seeing essentially broadly in the U.S. domestic debate on, on economics. It's for now something of sort of a anything but agreements uh, a sort of conversation. But I think there's going to be, as we see deals like uh, RCEP uh, taking shape, uh, as we see more movement on digital deals like, like DIPA, for example, there's going to be more of a demand for the United States uh, to do more. So I think that's kind of broadly uh, where things are. I think it also is important to acknowledge we're having this discussion a little bit earlier um, before the conversation started, that the United States doesn't really necessarily have to compete with everything that China does, um, you know, apple for apple, right? Um, the reality is that the United States and the U.S. government doesn't have the ability to coerce or sort of prod U.S. companies in an aggregate sector to do to to do everything in the same way, right? So you're you're not going to see um, U.S. economic policy take shape uh, the same way China does. And the reality is, geography and some of the other determining structural factors are different, right? You can't build a bridge from Laos to the United States, right? So there's things like infrastructure, for example, I, I think the United States and the US government will be very creative about how they distinguish themselves, which gets to a point which Ha and, and Susanna both raised, which is really important, which is as more actors engage with ASEAN and Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific, the big conversation is not just who's engaging, but what are you bringing to the table that's unique? And I think that's something which the United States and the Biden administration will have to advance very clearly, because there's a lot more actors that are engaging in Southeast Asia. That's fantastic. Um, I wanted to pick back up on this idea of the democracy agenda, because I think it's going to receive a lot more um, headlines in the next <clears throat> week or two um, as we get towards this summit. Um, we have a great question here from Hunter Marsden from the ANU. Uh, Prashant touched on the tensions introduced by the Biden administration's focus on democracy, which complicates US hopes of engaging all ASEAN partners in its broader strategic competition with China. So is there more that Washington can do with ASEAN uh, to support an ASEAN solution to, for instance, Myanmar's crisis and return to democracy? Or will great power competition remain the priority? And I guess, you know, I think Prashant mentioned only three of the ASEANs are getting an invite um, to the summit. So, you know, is this something we should be, you know, hopeful for? Prashant or anybody else as well? Maybe if I just come in briefly on that question, you know, I, you know, my, my personal sort of response to the question about Myanmar and ASEAN and, um, you know, there's a, a fantastic report that our colleagues at, at ASPE, Huang Li Tu and others put out on this topic, which I would refer people to on this question. But, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the key thing from my perspective is that Washington just needs to avoid a situation where its engagement with ASEAN is held hostage by any one member state of ASEAN. You know, I think ASEAN, as, as Ha mentioned earlier, I think, you know, they have applied an unprecedented sanction to, to Myanmar in preventing a coup leader from attending summits. Um, you know, it's good that that precedent was sustained in the summit that the ASEAN leaders held with Xi Jinping um, last Last month, um, and that paves the way for the US to continue to work with ASEAN, um, which which I you know personally see as being a, a positive thing. You know, on the question of sort of the democracy agenda more broadly. Um, 
My main concern with that as a sort of US approach to the region is that it potentially um, misunderstands and mischaracterizes the nature of the competition between the US and China in Asia, which is, you know, in my view, not an ideological competition primarily, but one which is about economics and influence and diplomatic engagement. Um, and that, um, you know, a US approach, which, you know, which believes that um, the countries will naturally prefer to work with democracy rather than autocracies um, actually really sort of risks um, not succeeding in that regional competition for influence. Thanks, Susanna. Um, we have more questions and we're probably going to have time to answer, but I'll, I'll push on. Um, this is a great one from uh, the US Study Centre. Um, so this is for Prashant and Ha. Um, so much of the discussion today has covered the positive contributions the US is making to the region. Um, yeah, it was a bit more optimistic than I was expecting uh, on things like vaccines, climate, supply chain security, investment, as well as sort of providing security. Now, these things are all very real, but it's increasingly common, I think, to hear the counter narrative, right? And often it's associated with China, um, but also in some regional quarters that, you know, the US is actually a destabilizing force uh, in the region. Uh, so why do you think that you know, narrative is there? Um, how can it be addressed? Um, it's a tough one, um, but Ha or Prashant, um, anyone want to have a crack at that one? Okay, I think uh, this narrative about the U.S. being uh, a destabilizing force, it, uh, the, the, the question uh, quite rightly put that it is often associated with China. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, China has really stepped up its narrative game and uh, this, this, this narrative that the US is the destabilizing force has been really uh, you know, amplified by China uh, over the past uh, few years, especially under the Trump administration. And of course, the Trump administration did give a lot of, uh, of, of reasons for China to, to, to leverage for its narrative. Uh, but um, I think from the point of view of uh, Southeast Asian, I think we all are quite um, objective about the fact that the US is a global power. It has the global interest and it has to pursue its interests um, uh, in, uh, in a way that sometimes is separate uh, from you know, the design and the preferences of uh, regional states. And uh, we have to accept it as it is and try to uh, influence the outcomes and, and try to also fit our uh, preferences into the policy making process. Whether it works or not, we don't know, but at least that is what uh, Southeast Asian countries um, would try to do and always try to do. Um, if you talk about Southeast Asia, it is very, very diverse. Uh, if you ask the Singapore government or the Vietnamese government, for example, or the Philippine government, of course, they understand uh, the, the, the stabilizing um, force uh, that the U.S. provided as an offshore balancer. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the fact that um, there is this narrative means that China has really stepped up its game especially among those countries that are more or less uh, more influenced by China. So what can the U.S. do? I think uh, the AUKUS provides a very good lesson. Um, you, you, you have to follow what you really have to do in terms of balance of power, but you must do better in terms of strategic communi communication and sending assurances to, uh, to regional states. 
uh, and at the same time, uh, try to double down and expand the positive agenda with the region. I think that is the better way to do to, uh, you know, counter this uh, narrative. So we've talked quite a lot about um, the EAS um, to a degree, you know, TPP and some of these trade agreements. Um, I just realized that, you know, one thing that we hadn't discussed was APEC, you know, sort of the first one. And so we have a great question here from Mohan Matthews, which says, there is little attention paid to APEC, uh, which is the only multilateral forum that actually includes China, Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, and so the annual meetings are at the leaders level. Um, I think for the last two years, it's been virtual but they should be back in person soon. So how can these be used to diffuse some of these regional trade and security tensions? Um, and is there anything preventing this um, from anyone on the panel? Susanna, I might start with you as the report author. Yeah, I think, you know, the, 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 the challenge for APEC perhaps is that while once the fact that it has a broad membership, including China, would have been seen as an advantage by the United States, that's now potentially more of a disadvantage. And I think one of the concerns I have about the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific economic framework um, which we really don't know much about yet. So it's, you know, it's probably too soon to be having firm judgments on that. But one of the concerns I have is that um, it seems like it will be developed as another kind of ad hoc coalition of flexible allies and partners. And I think that actually risks, um, you know, further splintering and undermining the idea of having inclusive groups like APEC, where all countries can meet and cooperate on, on common issues. But, you know, APEC really, I think, is struggling. It's actually not met in person, I believe, now for three years because um, it was cancelled um, even before the pandemic. Um, in 2019 and so three years without in-person meetings and you know really I think sort of struggling to find its mandate and although the US has offered to, um, to host it in 2023 I believe that's not yet been confirmed due to Russia's opposition so um, you know it's I think it's certainly a forum that needs a kind of a new boost of energy and so what I would really like to see would be that at least some part of the Indo-Pacific economic framework would be delivered through APEC because that would actually inject, uh, you know, some momentum and some positive focus into that group. Ha uh, or Prashant, any thoughts on APEC? I, I would just quickly add um, that, um, you know, on, on APEC uh, in this context of, um, U.S.-China competition, in, in particular, I, I I think there are concerns that we might see a repeat of what we saw, perhaps under the Bush administration, of APEC and some of the economic institutions being geopoliticized or securitized, and that competition would actually float into minilateral and then multilateral uh, institutions. Everything that I've seen and heard and 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 sort of um, gotten from the Biden administration folks is that they are coming up with a, a positive agenda in terms of how they're engaging with the region so far. But I think that's something that's always gonna be a point of concern. I, I would also just say, I mean, the, the, to the questions about democracy and, and US policy, um, you know, the, the, there is always a grain of truth to, um, you know, negative perceptions of, of US policy. I mean, it's a, a superpower that uh, engages in unilateral actions from time to time 
promotes high-level economic standards and democracy and human rights standards in a region which is still developing and in, in most of these countries are pretty undemocratic. And I think the United States floats back in and floats back out depending on which administration you have. So it's always understandable that those perceptions uh, sort of remain. And I think I, I would just say on democracy and human rights on Hunter's very good question. I think for me, the big question is always when you engage in a period of strategic competition, um, and in this case with China, does that mean you have to talk about your ideals and human rights and democracy less, or does that mean you should talk about it more? Um, and I think if that's a distinguishing characteristic, which everything in the Biden administration, including President Biden himself indicates, um, is very committed to uh, sort of promoting the notion that um, not just democracy and human rights in the aggregate, but issues of diversity, inclusion that are problematic in the United States are actually taking shape in the region. And sometimes the administration, I think, doesn't get enough credit for what it's doing. I mean, I, it's never been the case in US history of engaging with ASEAN that you have, I think, three African-American uh, high-level uh, cabinet secretaries engaging in Southeast Asia in a month and a half. Um, you know, that is a very, very impressive record. Um, and the United States doesn't really have to talk high-handedly and, and sort of mightily about democracy. There's a lot of things that it can do just by showing the challenges and the opportunities that it has uh, domestically and the advances it's making uh, to get the region to address its own issues on, on race and ethnicity that we all are very aware exist in Southeast Asia. That's a great point, Prashant. And I think, uh, I think of Secretary Austin's uh, speech at Shangri-La was really you know, a great example of that. Um, we have one last question and we only have a few minutes left, um, but it's great to sort of spin it back to Australia. So this is from Nikki Dufty and it says, are there actions that Australia can take to encourage and support US engagement that can leverage and elevate our own engagement in the region? And I would just add to that, I guess this one will, will start with you, Susanna. Um, you know, we had AUKUS and, you know, there was a lot of commentary in the region and yet ASEAN, you know, pushed forward and, you know, agreed to a comprehensive strategic partnership with Australia at the same time. So, you know, are we doing everything right? Maybe not, but, you know, we're trying very hard, I think. So, you know, are there any lessons there, I guess, for the US? Susanna? Well, I would just make the point when it comes to Australia's role that, you know, historically the greatest influence that Australia has ever had over US-Asia policy has been in regional multilateral forums through groups like APEC, the ASEAN Regional Forum. So absolutely, I think this is an area where Australia and the US should be doing more to cooperate. I think, you know, Australia can actually sort of, especially in groups like the EAS, play a huge role in keeping them vibrant and keeping sort of the injection of new ideas um, into those groups to make them more relevant vis-a-vis -vis other sort of less less broad groups. Um, and, and, and that will have a role, I think, of sustained them, which is certainly in our interests. And with that, we are spot on time. Um, that, it was a fantastic discussion. I want to thank uh, Susanna and Ha and Prashant. Um, I learned a lot. I hope our audience did as well. Um, thank you so much. Um, just before we wrap up, uh, I wanted to just add that on the 9th of December, um, the U.S. Studies Center uh, will be hosting. Oh, there we go. Um, we'll be hosting a event um, with called the NATO Expert Talk Series on emerging and disruptive technologies, progress and challenges with NATO's um, Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges, uh, David Van Wiel. 
And I'd also like to encourage all of our participants and audience uh, to sign up to our US Studies um, mailing list for all the latest on our upcoming events, publications, videos, podcasts. And we've got a really exciting lineup of activities for next year. Um, but I just want to say again, thank you so much, Susanna. Um, we all look forward to reading your report. Um, it's available on our website. I encourage everybody to check it out. And also thank you, Ha and Prashant, for that fantastic discussion. Um, so with that, uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon um, at the next US Studies Center event. Thank you so much.